Man, it is so good to be back with you guys. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name is Chris. I'm one of the college pastors um, here at Antioch. Um, I'm specifically um, over the GCU side of things, and I actually get to do that um, with my wife, Stosh, who's sitting in the front row. Um, she's amazing. If you guys get a chance to know her, you totally should. She is so, so incredible. Um, we are so excited to be back in action with you guys. Um, it's been so fun um, to be back on your guys' campuses the past couple weeks. I know a couple weeks ago, and we got to go to ASU's campus and be with you guys. Yeah, we got ASU in the house, usually sitting over here. Faithful to do that. Way to go. So awesome. Yeah, so we, we're both on um, ASU's downtown campus as well as their Tempe campus, um, and we got to go and um, reach out to new students and find new people to come be a part of this church body. Um, and we did the same for GCU um, this past week. We got to go during Welcome Week to all the events, and um, we really were just reaching out to see if more people wanted to be a part of what we're doing here. And um, that's what I love about this community, is that we're not just the people that are comfortable inside these four walls, but we're a very missional people that we want everybody to experience what we've tasted and seen. So thank you guys for the past week. I know a lot of you guys threw in to make that happen, and we're just so proud of you and thankful that we're not trying to drag you guys through the mud, but you guys are ahead of us leading the charge in most of the things that we do. So thank you guys a lot for doing that. Um, hey, well, tonight, before we jump into the message, we actually have a really special announcement. We have one announcement tonight, and we're super excited about it. It's our favorite time of the year. We have our annual college retreat coming up. Yeah. Yeah, you can get stoked about it. So um, it's going to be September 30th through October 2nd, and we're going to go back to UCYC again, the retreat center that we were at last year. And if you're unfamiliar with college retreat, really what it is, it's just a time for us to make space to encounter Jesus together. We're focused on community and we're focused about being a people of the presence of God. And we want all of you guys um, to be there and to experience what we got to experience last year. Um, how many of you guys were there last year? You can raise your hands. Awesome, that is actually so many people. Wow, so cool that we have so many returners. Um, hey, well, um, there's more that we can talk about, but I actually wanted to just give Hayes a chance to come up and share his experience from last year. So Hayes, why don't you come on up and share with us? Yeah, uh, so fall retreat, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. I was a freshman last year uh, when I went to fall retreat, and it's kind of like one of those things when you're a freshman in college, you're on your own, and you make decisions for yourself. So it's like you can either go all in with Jesus or all in th uh, with this world. There's like no really in between. And so... Uh, that coming into fall retreat, uh, that worship night, the Lord just began to highlight this idea of full surrender to me. Um, and I was like, I began to really contemplate like, okay, what does it actually mean for me to like take up my cross daily and to fully surrender uh, to him? And it's actually really funny because like in that exact moment as I was contemplating that, Chris comes up to me, lays hands on me. He's like, hey, can I pray for you? I feel like the Lord wants to take you to deeper, deeper levels of surrender. And I was like, all right, Lord, I know that's you. So like, <laughs> I began to like posture my heart of, Lord, would you teach me uh, what it's like to be fully surrendered to you? And like, while I began to posture my heart, my heart still, like the remainder of the night, felt like there was still some stuff that I was holding back. So fast forward to the following night, uh, we have Joy speak, and after her message, she has an altar call. And guess what the altar call is for? 
full surrender. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, uh, this uh, is definitely for me. So I go up to the front and this presence just begins to wash over me from head to toe. And it was so overwhelming. And I just began to like, I really fully surrender, give everything that I have uh, to the Lord. And what's even more crazy is after that, there was a second call for the Lord to begin to deal with fear. Um, and fear was like a large part of my past, like the fear of man, anxiety, just all that stuff. And, and so I stood up and the Lord just began to work in my heart. And honestly, I felt freedom um, in the area of fear like I have never felt before in my life. But, but here's the deal. It all started from that place of full surrender. And so like that, that's where it all started. And so like that was kind of like my testimony of what had happened at uh, fall retreat. And so like, honestly, I mean, shameless plug, but you all should really go to fall retreat. Um, and honestly, just to throw it out there, like the Lord loves it when we seek him out. Like it's like, seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Draw near to God and he will draw near to us. And it's like, it, it's, it's so powerful when we take an entire weekend to just say yes to seeking God. What, what will happen? And so I just wanna encourage you, prayerfully consider fall retreat. Lord wants to move. I'm super, super stoked. So thank you. You did such a good job. Thank you, Hayes. That was awesome. Working myself out of a job. So cool. Um, no, but seriously, you guys really should consider signing up for Fall Retreat. We're going to have a table in the back after service with an iPad where you guys can um, go to the back. And I dare you to approach that table because if you do, we'll definitely get you to sign up. So you guys should do it. It is $145 to sign up, but that does include um, your lodging, your food. We're not like making any kind of profit off of this retreat whatsoever. Um, but we will also help you guys coordinate rides and things like that. So excited to see you guys all there. All right. Well, tonight we're actually starting off a brand new four-part series and we're calling it A Passionate People. And before we get into that, we actually um, wanted to start off the message with sharing you, with you guys a little bit of vision of who we are as a college ministry. Um, and with that, what I want to say is that we wholeheartedly believe that vision isn't something that we create as a college staff or as a church staff at all, but it's, it's wisdom and it's um, direction that we actually receive from God. And he is so faithful to speak to us every year on where he wants to take us as a people. Um, and this year, I'm actually pretty stoked about it. The vision this year is super revolutionary. Are you guys ready for it? The vision this year is that we would be a people with a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. I know, it's crazy, revolutionary. Somebody should start a podcast about it, maybe write a book, make some cool t-shirts, put it on the back of every church t-shirt that we ever have, um, different things like that. Well, if you guys are unfamiliar with our church, we're actually a part of a movement of churches, um, both stateside and worldwide, that are centered around this very idea, that we are a people with a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. 
And this vision, it's nothing new that we came up with, but we really felt like God wanted to remind us that this isn't just a cool mantra or a cool tagline that we have, but it's the way that we live our lives as this church body with a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth, that we would be passionate about him and fall more in love with him than ever before. And that we'd also fall so in love with him that we'd be passionate about his purposes and not just our own. Like we truly believe that God wants to use you and his story um, to not only reach your campuses, but also to reach this city and reach the nations of the earth. And we also believe with that though, that this doesn't just happen by dreaming these big dreams, but this has to meet the dirt. And we believe that, that those dreams meet the dirt by God's purposes for the local church. And for us, what we believe God's purposes for the local church are, are to love God, to love each other, and to love the lost. It's not enough to just say that we love God, but not love those he's placed in our lives around us. And even beyond that, God's plan for us is not just to live inside these four walls, but his heart is to seek and to save the lost. And the best part about that is, is that he invites us in to co-labor with him in seeing that happen. And so here at this college ministry, we carry those values, loving God, loving others, and loving the lost out in five very practical ways. So hang with me here as I go through those five ways. Number one, we really believe in spending time with Jesus. So we cultivate that love for God by spending time with him daily. And we're not legalistic about it, saying that you have to have a certain quota of scripture that you read every day, or you have to go through certain spiritual disciplines. All we're saying is we want you guys to get away with the one who loves you and is for you and enjoys you. Like we truly believe that he's actually excited to meet with you every morning. And we want you guys to have that experience for yourselves as well. All right, number two, we take Jesus's command to make disciples very seriously. And um, so here at Antioch, we call it life on life discipleship. I and mean, what we mean by that, it's where we gather consistently in groups of maybe two or three um, to talk about intentional investment in one another's lives, encouragement, and to hold one another accountable. All right, number three is probably my favorite thing that we do, and that is life groups. Um, so these are where we meet weekly um, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays on both ASU's campus um, and GCU's campus. And these aren't just cool community groups, but these are places where we truly believe that the presence of God shows up every time that he's there and he's wanting to meet with us. It's a place where we build community with one another. And not just that, but it's a place where we read the Bible, but not just read it and then walk away, but that we read it and attempt to live it out practically right then and there in that very life group. All right, number four is this right here. It's Awaken. It's, it's the people of God gathered together to be unified around one thing and one thing only, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus and his purposes for our lives. And our prayer for this time is that we would be awakened by him, transformed by him, and sent by him wherever he wants to lead us next. All right, number five, this is the last one, and this one I think is the most important one um, to us, but this is that we are a community who is on mission for Jesus. And maybe you've heard it said before, but if you focus too much on the community, then you'll miss out on the mission. 
But if you focus on the mission, then the community will just come as a byproduct of that. And that's our heart, is that we don't wanna be this just self-focused, spiritual jacuzzi or holy huddle, but we wanna be a people that are outward focused, where, like I said earlier, it leaves the four walls of this church. We're a flowing river into the culture around us. So we take things like evangelism and caring for those less fortunate than us really seriously. We take reaching the lost on our campuses really seriously. Uh, but uh, specifically for our church, we're also a sending church. And what I mean by that is that we are really passionate about mission trips. You guys will get used to it, but we have mission trips kind of like all the time. So we have some for spring break, and then we have some all over the summer. We have conferences about it. We're very passionate about it. And that's because this church, this movement of churches started by a guy who wanted to see the local church be the one that was sending people to the nations of the earth to reach those who haven't heard the gospel before. So that's who we are and that's who we're always gonna be. We're really not into the whole like playing church thing at all, but we are a community that reorders our lives in order to follow Jesus. And if you're here for the first time, that's not like a pressure thing at all, but it's an invitation for you to be a part of something that is bigger than just you. It's bigger than the life you just wanna live for yourself, but it's a life where you're passionate about Jesus's purposes and not just your own. And I wanna be super clear here. None of that comes by plugging yourself into the quote unquote perfect church. We don't believe that about us at all. There's plenty of churches and plenty of options out there and we want you guys to find the best fit that's right for you. And none of that comes from you plugging yourself into a system or a five-step plan or anything like that. In order for us to have a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth, we have to realize something super crucial. We have to realize that Jesus first has a passion for us. When I was um, 19 years old, I had just started coming to Antioch and it was about two weeks into coming here and I had heard about um, their conference World Mandate. Um, and so I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but um, World Mandate is the annual mission conference that we have here at Antioch. And um, if you guys haven't been before, um, really the, the whole central idea about it is that um, it's the time of year where we bring in big speakers who will come and share about what's, what God is doing um, in all the different nations and all the earth. And um, this year we had gone on to San Diego, California to have the mission trip. And it was uh, my very first time there. And I was this young, zealous college kid that was super passionate. And I really wanted to um, just lay my life down for Jesus and do whatever he was calling me to do. Um, but was also struggling with getting good grades or, you know, just making my bed in the morning, all the really simple stuff. Um, but Anyways, I was so passionate about this and I was so excited when um, the first speaker that came up was this guy named Floyd McLung. And he um, was an amazing man of God who passed away a couple years ago, but he really did live a life where he was serious about being passionate about Jesus for the long haul. He was a man that you would admire, a man that you would look up to, a man that had crazy stories on the mission field. And he was sharing some of those. Um, and he gets to the end of his message. And at the end of his message, he gets to the place where he'd all been waiting for, the place where he'd finally find like the secret formula or the secret sauce into following Jesus with all you have, like what it takes to follow him for the long haul. And, and he stops and he simply just says, if you wanna have a passion for Jesus for the rest of your life, then you have to realize one thing and one thing only. You have to realize that Jesus loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. 
There wasn't like a 10-step plan, a book recommendation, or a podcast to listen to. He didn't hit us with a bunch of spiritual disciplines, religious rules, or lists of do's and don'ts, but he simply just told us about the love of God. And I know that can kind of sound elementary, but it's actually so foundational to our faith, and it's crucial for us to make it for the long haul. In 1 John 4.10, we actually sang about this earlier, but it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the very foundation of our faith right there. An unmatched, unearned, unheard of, and undeserving love that cost us nothing, but cost him his very life. But for whatever reason, and I do it too all the time, I think we can treat God's love like it's the thing that ignites our faith, but not like it's the thing that is central to our passion for Jesus, that it's not the thing that keeps us passionate about him. My family has this um, little cabin out in the Northern New Mexico mountains. And um, by cabin, I actually mean cabin. It's like this 800 square foot um, ski lodge thing. It's not like those cabins in Minnesota or Washington that people call cabins, but it's bigger than like your first home. Um, but anyways, this one has like no insulation at all. We barely ever brave it up to go there in the winter because it can be so cold. And honestly, we barely ever brave it up to go up there in the winter because our furnace is super unreliable. And the reason our furnace is so unreliable, the thing that heats the whole cabin, is because it all depends on this one little thing called the pilot light. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with pilot lights, but they're the, the little flame that ignites like a heater or a furnace. And I think that's what we can treat God's love as. We can treat it like it's this finicky little flame that we have to keep running back to again and again, when in reality, God's love isn't like that at all. His love is this blazing wildfire that's chasing us down and wants to consume us until we're completely transformed. And we know that we know that we know that he loves us and that he enjoys us. And if we treat his love like it's this pilot light that ignites our hearts, but then we take over and say, okay, God, I got this. I'll let my passion for you keep me going instead of your passion for me. I'll stoke the flames of my heart by doing all the right things and impressing you and keeping it all together. Eventually, we just can't anymore. Eventually, we just come back to him and say how much we need his love, but it's really just to get enough until we make it until the next time we crash and burn over and over again. Or until we just give up altogether. We get apathetic, we settle for a life of compromise, filling our hearts with all the wrong things. Or with a life of religion, a life where we shut our hearts off, but at least we look like we have it all together on the outside. But here's the thing. His love isn't just a small one-time thing. It's an all-consuming, relentless, and never gives up on us. It's never off, but it's always on, and it's always, always chasing us down. So we're gonna take a look at this tonight in our main passage of scripture. Um, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15 with me. Luke 15. 
the book of Luke is in the middle part of your Bible in the section called the Gospels. I mean, the Gospels are just a collection of stories about Jesus and his work while he was here on the earth. And his main work was to announce and set his kingdom in motion. And when you think his kingdom, don't think like knights and castles, but more so think the reign and the rule of a king. And that king was Jesus. Um, Scott McKnight defines the kingdom of God as the society in which God's will is done. That's a super simple definition that I like to go by. Um, Just think wherever the king is, that's where his kingdom is. And in essence, what you see Jesus saying about his kingdom and his way of life is to rethink everything you think you know about God and what it means to worship him. So back in this time period of ancient Israel, the Jewish people were under the oppression of the Roman empire and waiting for a king and a Messiah to come and save them from this. They hoped for a political leader that would aggressively overthrow Rome. So you can imagine some of their skepticism when Jesus is believed to be this hero, but seems to be pretty unconcerned with starting a military revolution. He says things like, bless those who persecute you and pray for your enemies. And not only that, but let's take a look at the first two passages or the first two verses of this passage um, to help us set the stage a little bit more. So Luke 15, verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So there's two groups of people that are present as Jesus is talking. Group number one would have been who Luke is calling the tax collectors and sinners. So in modern vernacular, we'd probably just call them something like the scum of the earth. Um, And the reason I say that is because the tax collectors were Jews themselves who were hated by Jews because they were traitors. Rome had a very heavy and corrupt tax system. They would contract out local Jews known as tax collectors, give them a booth with a Roman guard uh, to make sure people would pay their taxes. And they took an unfair amount of taxes from their own Jewish people. So imagine like a fisherman or a tradesman is on their way back um, from earning 100% of their wages that day and they have to stop back by the local tax collector booth. Um, And as they do, they have to pay some taxes. And it's not like 20 or 30% or something reasonable, it's like 50% of their wages. And not only that, but then you have the corrupt tax collectors who skim some off the top, and by some, like 20%. So then you're left with only 30% of what you actually worked for. So you can imagine the disdain that people felt towards these people. And the other sinners that Jesus talked about um, were those like prostitutes, which would have been a very shameful way back in that um, day. That would have been a very shameful way of life. Uh, Sexuality was not celebrated like it is today in our culture, Um, but these were the type of people who Jesus pursued. He came for the broken and the hurting and those who were outcast from society. But to the Pharisees, this religious, this elite religious group, this would have been greatly offensive. He's thought to be the Messiah, but he eats with traitors and those who disobey God's law. Like this wouldn't have just been confusing to them, but it would have been threatening to them as well. See, the Pharisees, they were obsessed with keeping God's law, uh, not because they were trying to just um, be this religious elite group, but it's because disobeying God's law is what kept the Israels or what made them go into um, exile in the first place. It's why they were under Roman oppression in the first place. So we can imagine why they feel threatened um, by Jesus here. So the Pharisees are grumbling and making a fuss about Jesus, hanging out with this crew of social outcasts. So Jesus decides to clap back like he does. 
And I love that about him. He was not interested in playing nice. If you got in his way with pride-filled opinions and religious jargon, then he let you have it. So in savvy Jesus-like fashion, he tells them a couple of simple stories about the heart of God. And the first one, we're not gonna read together. We're just gonna sum it up. So it's about a shepherd who loses one of his 100 sheep. So he leaves the other 99 and goes to great lengths to find that lost sheep. And when he does, he rejoices and invites others to rejoice with him. It's symbolic of God's heart. And for those who are lost and who come back to him, and then nearly 2,000 years later, Corey Asbury will write a song about it that'll melt our faces and it'll be amazing. Um, this was so funny. Actually, I saw this post the other day on Corey Asbury's Instagram where he was showing off his golf swing and somebody commented in the comments, they were like, you know, God's love might be reckless, but so is that golf swing. <laughs> I, thought, I was like, that is ruthless, man. <laughs> it's so funny. All right, and then we have the same message here in, um, with the woman with the two coins. So she is searching for the silver coins or her lost coin that she um, loses. And then she goes to these great lengths to try and find it again. And she does, and she rejoices. It's the same pattern. Uh, but now in verse 11, we get to the story that I really wanna hone in on. So starting in verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Still waiting for my dad to do that for me. I just got like a Bible on my name with it when I got saved, so it feels pretty unfair. But anyways, we're going down to verse 25. This is the next part of the parable. So they're kind of separated into two separate stories. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the, cat, the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your, prop your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brothers of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. 
I love this story. I mean, it's the heart of a father for his wayward son. Like there's something about that plot that gets me every single time. Um, this summer, my wife and I were babysitting for some friends of ours um, and it was the middle of July. So um, the kids that we were watching wanted to watch a movie and they wanted to watch Home Alone like you do in the middle of July. Um, it was kind of weird, but we were down for it. So we were watching Home Alone in the middle of July and I had totally forgot how they sneak that part into the plot about old man Marley. Um, and you think he's just kind of this crazy character when you're a little kid, but then you grow up and you realize that it's like this profound story of this old man who is distant from his son over a fight and then they reconcile like at the end of the movie. So I'm, I'm watching Home Alone with these seven-year-olds and I'm like, this is really deep and really touching. I cannot cry right now. Like these seven-year-olds will not let me hear the end of it. If I cry, like it's, it's July, I shouldn't even be watching this. But in that movie that I've seen so many times before, like in this parable that we've read probably thousands of times before, have heard so many times before, there's treasures about the heart of God that I'm still discovering. Things that melt my heart and honestly, things that challenge me. And hopefully they do for you tonight as well. So remember, we have the two different audiences present. The tax collectors, the sinners, you know, the AKA the scum of the earth, and then the Pharisees, the religious elite, or those who are obsessed with their own morality. And we have two parts of the story, part one about the wayward younger brother, and part two, the older brother's complicated, but honestly quite concerning and a little bit familiar of a response. In part one, the younger brother comes to the father with what would have been an incredibly disrespectful and self-centered request. So this would have caught the original audience's attention for sure. To come to your father and say, give me my share of the property and estate would have been like saying, I wish you were dead and I had your rightful my rightful portion of all that you own. So sons rightfully had an inheritance, but it would have only been given to them once the male patriarch had passed away, once the, the father had passed away. So imagine your parents are dropping you off at college and you're saying, thank you for raising me, providing for me my whole life, but I actually only wanted you for your things and your stuff and I wish you were dead so I could have everything else that you own. That's like, it's that drastic, but that's legitimately what is going on right here. And when I was 17, I had a little bit of this type of a story, um, not with my dad, but with, with God. I had a little bit of this attitude where um, I had been walking with Jesus radically for about two years, um, but then I was still stuck in this place of sin. I um, had experienced some of the joy and the grace of God, but life was still hard because life is hard and sin was still fun because sin is fun. So I basically said, forget about all of this Jesus stuff. And you know what? I'm just gonna do my own thing and, and live for myself. And it didn't start off as this like reckless and uncontrollable living. Um, it started off by exploring my selfish desires and finding my own path instead of the one that God had for me. It started off with watching the wrong things. Because, you know, maybe it's not that bad. And then that just goes down a dark rabbit hole until you're in the throes of addiction and bondage to it. But you know, it's only hurting yourself until you're in the wrong situation with the wrong person at the wrong time and all your defenses are down and you choose to cross that line again and again and again until you're left empty. So you just find whatever you can to match the pain. Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's self-harm, using prescription drugs. Maybe you start to explore the occult or new age practices Sin likes to spiral. 
And in the end, it just leaves us empty and still wanting more every time. We see this in this parable. The son just wanted to explore his own path and his own desires and see where that would take him. And it left him completely alone, just begging to be one of his father's hired servants. And it's no secret that this is the path that our society at large has chosen to follow. According to Barna, a Christian research institute, only 4% of Gen Z and 6% of millennials in America hold a biblical worldview. And they did another study where they asked adults in America who either identify as a Christian or at one point identified as a Christian in the past, and only 10% of them identified as actual disciples of Jesus. And aside from these statistics, it's clear that we not only live in a post-Christian nation, but now more so in a post-truth era as well, where things like the earth being round are still objective uh, for some people, but morality is now subjective and has the same kind of thinking as whatever your favorite color is, whatever your favorite um, flavor of ice cream is, where truth is whatever you feel, love is whatever you want it to be, and you just live your life however you want as long as you're not hurting anyone. But my point is, life right now in our culture isn't designed for us to walk in life and life to the full with Jesus. Life in our culture is designed for us to walk down a path given to our own desires. And the reality is that, and this is biblical, but even aside from that, just the laws of nature point to this, our, our choices matter. And the path we take greatly affects our well-being and the well-being of those around us. Sin promises the sun, but it delivers the moon every time. There's an old quote that reads like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And the son's sin in this story cost the father a whole lot. For the, the father to give his son his share of the estate, he would have had to sell his land. He would have had to sell a portion of it. And in ancient Near East context, your land was actually a part of your identity. So this was, his identity was lap, wrapped up in this land as a male patriarch of the family. It was a big part of who he was to his surrounding community. And he didn't just lose his son or some money, but it, it came at the, the cost of the father having to lose a very part of his life. And as we look in this passage, we don't see the father making any fuss about it at all. He's patient with the son and gives him what he asks for, even though he himself is rejected, shamed, and in deep pain. Our sin, it doesn't just hurt us, but it, it grieves the heart of God. And this might sound strange, but I'm actually very thankful for that. He doesn't view sin as just this immoral behavior that we need to somehow fix with righteous deeds, but he views it as a disease that destroys our lives and ultimately separates us from him. A disease that only he can get rid of, but it does come at great cost to himself. And the son knew this. He was down in the mud with the pigs and realizes what he's done and at great cost to his father. So he makes up this plan. He considers himself unworthy of his father's affection and decides he'll come back to his father and just be a hired servant. So this would have been really intentional and a very deliberate request in this culture. Apologies wouldn't suffice. Um, there would have to be some kind of restitution as well. Uh, the son owed a debt. And it came back, if he came back as a hired servant, he could work off that debt over the rest of his life. And I think that's what we try to do, or at least what I try to do sometimes. We try to pay our debt by distancing ourselves from God, putting ourselves in timeout, punishing ourselves with shame and condemnation. And sometimes we even try to clean ourselves up. 
Um, have you guys ever uh, been around parents before who have toddlers or babies? And the toddler or the baby makes a mess. Maybe they go to the bathroom in their pants. So the parent gets super mad at them, shames them, tells them, how could you? I can't believe you did this, and then makes them clean it up. Of course not. Or at least I hope not. That would be crazy. They're two, and they make mistakes. And they're incapable of cleaning themselves up. And it's the same with us. And that's not to say that we're, incap- we're ignorant of our own sin and not held accountable to it but God is way kinder to us than we deserve. He sees us more as little kids that are learning how to walk, where every time we fall, he's saying, here, let me help you up. Let me clean up your cuts and let's try that again. So this son comes back ready to work off his debt, but it says that while he's still a long way off, the father runs to him. And he not only ran after his lost son, but he fully embraced him in the midst of all the sin and the betrayal the son committed and he kisses him. See, God's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up and to pay off our debt. He just wants us to recognize that we need him so he can chase us down, embrace us, and draw us close. And as the son is starting to give the speech he's been rehearsing about how he's gonna pay off what he's done, the father stops him. He gives him his best robe and his ring to show that his son is not only forgiven, but he's restored as well. It's the very opposite of what his son expected and deserved. David Benner, a Christian psychologist um, who counseled thousands of people, wrote this book on being yourself. And in it, he talks about how he often asks people the question, when you come into God's presence, what do you think about what God thinks about you? Like, what do you think God actually thinks about you when you come into his presence? And what do you think the number one answer was? Well, the number one answer across the board was disappointment. Like, that's the majority of what people think God thinks about them is that he's disappointed in them. But it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the very message of the gospel demonstrates that point, right? In Romans 5a, it tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 103 tells us that he redeems our lives from the pit, crowns us with love and compassion, and even satisfies the desires of our heart. The love of God is unmatched and it's perfect in every single way. And it's so much better than the romantic and flaky kind of love that we see in movies or on TV. Like when God created us, he didn't create us because he was needy or dependent. He was actually already completely satisfied in himself, but he created us because he wanted us. It's a love that wants us and it's a love that desires us. And it's a love that lasts forever. Uh, There's actually a Hebrew word for it in uh, Isaiah 54 called hesed. I'm butchering that pronunciation, but it means his unfailing love. And scripture also tells us that he delights in us, is jealous for us, and that we're the very apple of his eye. He not only loves us, but he likes us and he enjoys us. And this son in this story is met with that same heart. A father who is so excited for his return, he gives him his best robes and he throws him a party. In his deepest and darkest place of shame, the son is met with extravagant, extravagant, undeserved grace. Harry Ironside says this about grace. He defines it like this. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. That's the grace of God. In his mercy, God forgives our sin, but in his grace, he actually chooses to remember it no more. There's a passage in scripture that tells us that. 
And not only that, but he chooses to lavish his love on us instead, like in this story. He's not stiff arming us and rubbing our nose in our sin. He's chasing us down and he's doing us back into obedience with his kindness. And no matter what choices you made or where you're at in your journey, I promise you that he's crazy about you. He's madly in love with you and he's way kinder than you think he is. His love is passionate, it's unconditional, it's undeserved, and it can't be earned, just like in this story. But again, it does come at a great cost to someone. And that's why Jesus continues the story. Remember, he had two audiences present. The unconditional love in God's heart for his wayward children has been addressed, but what about for the Pharisees, the religious elite? Well, so in actuality, the first part of the story was probably more for them than we think about in modern context. Like usually the first part of this parable is preached at youth group and it melts hearts, everyone's crying. Little Chad comes down to the front and gets saved for the fourth time, uh, that whole thing. But remember our context of who the Pharisees are. Remember, they're not trying to keep the law to earn the favor and grace of God. They actually think they already have it. They're just trying not to lose it. So Jesus goes after this very thing in the next part of the story with the older brother. The older brother is out in the field and he's, he hears about this party happening for his returned younger brother. His first reaction isn't excitement or rejoicing, but it's, it's anger. And Jesus is demonstrating that there's two ways of life without him that insist on being your own savior instead of relying on him. The way of life the younger brother chose and maybe some of us have chose in the past. And then the way of life that the older brother chooses that some of us can choose as well, where we try to just be really moral or really good our faith isn't actually dependent on the grace of God at all, but more so it's just a means of us trying to control him with our good behavior. And it, it has the illusion that all is going well for a while until we don't get what we want. See, older brothers will treat God like a vending machine. They, they put in good behavior, therefore God owes them answered prayer and an easy and comfortable life. It's workspace and it's results oriented. It has nothing to do with being unconditionally loved, but it has more so to do with being a distant slave of God. But that's what's so dangerous about it. You think you're way closer to God than you actually are. The younger brother may have gone off to a distant country, but in the end, he's the one we see celebrating and enjoying the father's company. But the older brother tells his father outright, all these years I've been slaving for you, all these years, I've been doing the right things, making the right choices. I've earned this party, not him. And it's devastating, but it's so obvious right here. It wasn't love for his father that motivated the older brother, but it was fear. And that's the root of dead religion and lack of intimacy with God. It's fear of punishment. It's, it's this wrong view of the father. It's seeing him as this tyrannical ruler that we have to perform for and to earn his approval. It's obedience that's based on getting him to do things for us instead of out of our genuine love for him. And that's the kind of fear that leads to no intimacy with God and no passion for him whatsoever. It leads to us having a passion to do the right thing so that we get our way and God doesn't smite us. And it leads us to wanting to do better or maybe to be better. And that starts off just for yourself, right? Where you wanna do better and be better for yourself, but then envy and comparison come in because you're trying to do better and be better than everyone else around you. And to be quite honest, I think that in our modern context though, what it leads to the most, um, it leads to a life of living for the approval of others because you don't truly know God's unconditional love for you. 
where you have to be liked by everyone in order to feel good about yourself. You have to prove to everyone that you have a fun personality. You know all the influential people. You never have conflict with anyone. Your main goal is to find acceptance, what others think about you, instead of finding approval in the Father's love for you. But in order for us to sincerely have a passion for Jesus, our passion can't be to be significant in the eyes of man. Our passion needs to be for Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's why I love this next part of the story. So go ahead and look again with me at verse 31. In it, he says, son, I am always with you and all that I have is yours. God is abundantly gracious. He's not withholding from us, but he's telling us something even better than that. He's saying, son, I am always with you. Like, you don't get it, son. It's not about your brother getting the fattened calf or his portion of the estate back. It's not about a party. It's not about you working for your rightful inheritance. It's that you both get me. And that's gotta be enough. Our faith, our passion for Jesus has to depend on his passion to be with us. Because it cost him everything. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And where their stories are more similar to the rebellious younger brother or the self-righteous older brother, we've all fallen short and none of us can save ourselves. We need someone who chases us down and does what the older brother in this story should have done but was unwilling to do. In this story, the older brother should have left everything to go find the younger brother, but he didn't. But that's the point Jesus is trying to make. We get someone better than the elitist, self-righteous Pharisees. We get Jesus. We get the one who was willing to leave his home with the Father to a distant, far country. He left heaven for earth to come and meet us in our sin, meet us in our shame, pay the penalty that we deserved. So that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the reality that we get to live in every day. We can't save ourselves. We'll never measure up. We'll never pay off our debt. We'll never earn it. But that's the good news. We, we don't have to at all because Jesus already did. He was tortured on a cross for us. That was our punishment, but he took it for us. He died our death and not only that, but he defeated the power of sin by resurrecting three days later. We're only forgiven for our sins, but it no longer has power over us. We're free to live for him. And he did it all because he wanted us back. My favorite author, Philip Yancey, sums the whole story of the Bible this way. God gets his family back. And that might sound simple or rudimentary, but it's something that we never graduate from. God not only loves you so much, but he enjoys you so much that he gave up his very life to have us back. And I know that that's just a simple thing that we can talk about upon salvation, but the reality is, is that the gospel isn't something that we just receive upon salvation. The gospel of Jesus giving everything for us, the gospel of his grace, the gospel of having to depend on him instead of our own strength, that's something that we have to live out every day. Not something that we have to live out, it's something that we get to live out every day. He gets the worst end of the deal. We get the better end of the deal. He gets our sin, he gets our shame. He has to do all the work, but we get free grace. We get free, unconditional love of a father who not only loves us because he has to, 
but a father who loves us because he feels that he gets to, he wants to. He enjoys us and he wants to be with us. Would you guys stand with me as we head into a time of response? This is um, what we believe to be the most important part of our service. This is the time where we take what we're learning and we practically apply it. That might not mean like I give you a couple of practicals, but it might just mean that you come to this Jesus that we're talking about, that we come to the one who loves you more than anything, and you just open your hearts to him tonight. We have the front available for you guys to come up, and I'm actually gonna invite the ministry team to come up at this time. You guys can be here to pray for people. They wanna pray for you for any need that you have of, but there's just a couple of different ways that I felt the Lord is wanting us to respond tonight. Number one, and most important, if this message of the gospel, if you don't know this love of the Father, if you've never actually surrendered to his love before, well then tonight's the night for you. Tonight's the night of salvation for you. Tonight's the night where you get to step into relationship with him. And if that's you, then we would love to pray for you up at the front. You can come and grab us or you can grab a friend next to you if you're more comfortable with that. And for the others of you, you've known this love before, but maybe it's been a little while or a long while since you've surrendered to it. Maybe you've walked away and you've chosen a life of sin like we saw um, the younger brother chose, but you're ready tonight to come back and just know that he's gonna embrace you and he's gonna chase you down. He's been chasing you down for a long time and he's ready to receive you tonight. If that's you, we'd also love to pray for you. Or if you just need to come and get down on your knees in the front, you're welcome to do that as well. And then for others of you, I think there's a repentance that maybe needs to take place. And I have to do this often just to be forthright with you, but a repentance where we're not repenting of just the things that we've done, we've done in the past, but where we repent of all the things that we try to do to measure up or all, all the things that we try to do to earn the favor and the grace of God instead of just freely receiving his grace and his love. Like tonight is the night where you're done with trying to clean yourself up, but you fully just surrender to God's love for you. And for the rest of us, and this is the gospel, it's the thing that we never graduate from or grow out of. And it's the thing that we always have to return to. And it's why we started um, our college ministry, our year of awaken off this way, was that we wanna be a gospel centered people. It's not flashy, it's not um, just this crazy hype thing, but it's the very core of our faith and it's who we are and it's who we'll always be. But wherever you're at in this place, don't leave this place without responding to God. Jesus, we love you, God, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you're for us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you gave your very life for us, God. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to jump up and down trying to get your approval or trying to get your attention. But all we have to do is draw near to you and you'll draw near to us. So we just ask you to come in this Holy Spirit, in this moment, Holy Spirit, and make the love of God known to us. In Jesus' name, amen.